Today on CityCast DC, what is it about the DMV that causes a global capital to treat a new supermarket like huge news? This week, it's about the new Lidl in Southeast DC. And you know what? The backstory is actually really interesting. We'll talk about that and a few other stories from around the DMV. Newsletter writer Kayla Cote-Stemmerman and lead producer Priyanka Tilve are with me to break it all down. Today is Friday, September 23rd, 2022. I'm Michael Schaefer, and this is CityCast DC. All right, guys, so I want to start with our One of Us segment, which is usually about a person who's a big deal in the DMV and what we think about them, what we should think about them. Today, I'm actually going to talk about a store, and the store is called Lidl. It's a German grocery chain. It's got kind of a cult following. It moved into, into North America a few years ago. Its uh, North American headquarters is in Northern Virginia. And uh, this week, it is opening its first D.C. store in the Skyland Center in Southeast D.C., near Hill- Hillcrest. And, you know, D.C. has this weird thing where we act like the arrival of a supermarket is going to, like, totally transform a neighborhood or, you know, represent its culture or its its uh, aspirations. In Upper Northwest, where I live, people acted like the Wegmans that opened. It was like <laughs> we were in Palookaville and the monorail had finally arrived. On that real quick, I remember I got seven or eight different pamphlets about that Wegmans opening up. I'm like a mile away, but I got... Right. A bajillion notification. (laughs) Right. And like, I'm old. So, you know, there was a time when it was like we had Giant and we had Safeway. And, you know, the ones in uh, rich neighborhoods were maybe a little bigger and had like a slightly larger gourmet aisle, but they were basically about the same. And now it's like you've got a grocery store for every taste you may have and, and every price point and every cult point. But the thing is, there's actually, I mean, people feel validated by the presence of a cool or trendy chain. But there actually is a track record here of grocery stores, big grocery stores putting neighborhoods on the map. The the Whole Foods on P Street is really thought of as like, well, that really tipped Logan Circle to a different status. Right. Um, Totally transformed it. Right. And so in Skyland, that's like especially the case. This is in Ward 7. The uh, surrounding neighborhood is actually, you know, this is not a deeply impoverished neighborhood immediately around it. But the reputation of the neighborhoods east of the river is such that a lot of big grocery chains have steered clear and folks have been underserved. They, The city, uh, a few years ago, it was all hot to trot for opening Walmarts and, and uh, one of the Walmarts was supposed to open there and the chain bailed out at the last minute. So now Lidl has come and it's, it's a kind of interesting chain. It, it's kind of a competitor with Aldi, another German chain that is, offers like really, really low price points. But it's kind of cooler, and it's it's uh, in-house brands are sort of a, a thing. Some of them, I actually don't know the answer to this, but like some of them have really good wine selections. I'm not sure if the DC one is going to be a liquor license or not. But it's kind of a you know it's 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 a telling thing about how the city works that we really we hang so much economic development and aspiration on the the launch of neighborhoods. And we also get kind of geeky for grocery stores being cool or not cool or, or saying that we are cool. Well, I think in this case, Lidl opening is actually a pretty big deal because Ward 7 and 8 are seen as a food desert. And politicians in D.C. have been trying to get a grocery store to land there for a decade with no success. 
great. This is the first one in more than 10 years, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's pretty wild. I have spoken with people there who say that growing up in a food desert was really, really difficult. And I'm sure that there are a lot of people pinning hopes on Lidl kind of helping turn that around. Yeah, I think especially for fresh, like fresh goods, fruits and vegetables, stuff like that, that's hard to get at corner stores and smaller spaces. This is going to be pretty transformative. But generally, I think your observation is really interesting, Mike, about the way that people freak out in the city over over zero markets opening up. I've heard also people talk about the Whole Foods completely changing the pastry area. And I mean, has anything changed in uh, in your area since that Wegmans opened up? Um, the, the children are even more above average than before. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, it's that high quality produce. I mean, look, for years, people in Washington and people in, in most big cities resented that, you know, look, we're in cities, the spaces are smaller, and we don't get to have these like big, massive, awesome supermarkets the way they do in the suburbs. And at some point, the, the supermarket chains got wise and they realized like, hey, our model has been we put like a huge store on an even huger lot surrounded by parking and people drive there and park. And that obviously was something that was much easier to do in uh, suburbs and excerpts. And then they kind of realized like, hey, what if instead of that, we put up some buildings and one of them has a supermarket in it, but we're also part of developments that are making money by like selling condos and renting stores to storefronts to businesses. And it becomes a kind of urban development virtuous cycle. And that's, you know, it's not just happening in cities, but it has given companies, uh, supermarket companies, a way of establishing themselves in urban neighborhoods and not having to forego profits that come with having a big store. So this development where the Lidl is coming also has condos, also has stores, also has shopping. It's, it's really the kind of thing that, particularly if you're in an underserved neighborhood, a place where you're accustomed to having to get in your dang car like a suburbanite and, and drive anytime you want anything, it has a potentially transformative uh, effect. And that's, um, that's great for DC. For sure. I will say, while we're talking about supermarkets, I want to make an appeal to the supermarket gods that be for better ethnic food stores in DC, because right now I still have to drive out to the middle of nowhere anytime I want something that is Korean or Chinese or Indian. That stuff just does not Hana? exist. And I have. I like Hana. I like Hana Market on you. A lot, but it's tiny. Into a small space. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really, really small. Don't you think your plea instead of to the supermarket gods should be to the Indian and Korean and Chinese communities to actually move into the city? Because the supermarkets tend to, to locate where their customers live. And for years, the pattern in the, the D.C. area has been like the city has black people and white people. And immigrants, people of other ethnic groups tend to go straight to the burbs when they come here. And there's a lot, okay. of, lo lot of reasons for that. That's fair. Okay, people from Asia, Asian Americans, <laughs> Asian immigrants, please come to the city. I, I need those goods. Come hang out Better? with Priyanka. This girl yeah. needs her frozen roti. I really do. <laughs> Priyanka, where do you go when you go grocery shopping and you're looking for that? Yeah, I drive out to H-Mart in Arlington. There's a few different H-Marts out there. There's also an mm H-Mart -hmm. in Fairfax. And I go out to Patel Brothers. And also there is a really great, I can't even remember what it's called, but there's a really great Iranian market in Rockville. And I get like pomegranate molasses and those uh, dried limes and things like that there. 
I feel like some uh, genius of the market who's going to be richer than me ought to figure out how to solve this problem for you and, and make a profit while they're at it. I would very much appreciate that. Take my money. <laughs> All right. Hey, let's talk about the big picture. Priyanka, take it away, my friend. Yeah. So bigger picture, as always, is a story where we're going to talk about something that's in the news, but we're going to expand it out to why this is a big deal. And I'm sure everyone listening has seen the headlines about the anti-transgender policies in Virginia that Governor Youngkin is pushing. These are model policies that he is suggesting or his Department of Education is suggesting that school districts across the state adopt. There's a bunch of them. They want school personnel to only refer to children by their legal name and the pronouns corresponding to their sex assigned at birth. They would limit student participation in sports to only the gender that's reflected in their official school record. They would have to use bathrooms that correspond to the gender assigned at birth. And then the one that makes me the most upset is that they would have to tell parents before giving any counseling services that relate to gender. I mean, that particularly gets to me because I remember being a kid in middle school wanting to go to the school counselor and trust is such a big part of that, knowing that the parents are going to be notified that just completely strips away that trust. Reminds me of that Mad Men episode where she goes to the therapist and then the therapist like tells her husband exactly what she said in this session. Oh my God, yes. Yeah. But the, but the parent part is, you know, really central to this. Youngkin and his administration say that this is all about giving back parent rights, that parents are a child's primary and most important educator. That's a direct quote from the model policy. And they're trying to reverse the policies that were suggested under Governor Ralph Northam last year. This is a huge tonal shift. The reason that we're talking about this as part of our bigger picture segment is because it highlights a really interesting distinction between the way Northern Virginia is compared to Richmond and sort of the rest of Virginia. The Northern Virginia school districts are not having this. Alexandria, Arlington, Falls Church, and Fairfax have all come out and said that they do not intend to fully follow these policies. And it's pretty murky whether or not Richmond is actually going to be able to force them to. All of these schools have said that there is the Virginia Human Rights Act that protects students from policies like this, and they plan to adhere to that act. Well, I don't understand. I like I actually don't understand how this would protect parents and families relationships with their children. Youngkin ran on a I mean, the whole theme when he ran was that I'm going to make sure that there's nothing that's happening at your kid's school that makes you, the parent, the presumably conservative parent in his telling, uncomfortable. So basically a kid couldn't like go by a different pronoun at school and then switch when they're at home, basically. Right. That, that, and that, that, Where they're um, uncomfortable. The implicit argument in his, when he ran for governor was that, you know, these schools are full of radicals trying to pull one over on you. So he, you know, very clearly said, like, I'm going to give, quote unquote, parents more power over schools. And that often means like removing some of these bureaucratic protections about what you can do, about what books you can read, all that. But look, at, I mean, you could, he could say, you know, I ran on this, I won. You know, what's your problem? Right. I mean, and theoretically, parents could submit a, quote, change of sex form if they are in agreement with their 
trans child changing their pronouns or changing their name. And so I think that's the other way in which they're arguing that this puts the the power back in the parents' hands as opposed to the school or teachers being allowed to determine how a child chooses to identify. That's a tough situation to be in for a kid. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, it just means that that kids kids' power is completely stripped away here, right? Right. right. Well, and there's I think no... Legally, they don't got any. Mm. Can I say, like, so speaking of, like, legal power question, can the local counties just say, you know, go pound sand, Governor? We Like, we're not going to follow your rules? That's the thing. It's kind of unclear whether or not the state government can actually enforce these policies. They are called, quote, model policies. And so... All of the school districts, all 133 of them across the state, are going to be encouraged to change their policies to reflect this. But they can't really force it, as far as I know. This actually came up last year. So after the 2021 model policies encouraged people to give more rights to transgender kids, Loudoun County was not 100% on board with that. There were a lot of angry parents protesting the gender-inclusive naming and bathroom policies. So they came to school board meetings and protest. There was one Loudoun teacher who sued the school division because he was suspended after refusing to use the pronouns that a transgender student asked for. And that teacher ended up winning that court case. His suspension was reversed. He had argued that it violated his First Amendment rights, and that's how he won the case. So the fact that there have been some wins for schools pushing back against the 2021 model policies makes me think that the same type of thing would happen this year after the 2022 model policies. Yeah, I don't think they can really, really force it. People are just upset about the tonal shift this reflects. And I think it, yeah, I think it's interesting that there is such a big distinction between the blue Northern Virginia area and the rest of the state. And I'm curious about how this is going to manifest in years to come. I feel like that ideological shift is just going to grow deeper and deeper. But wait, like Loudoun County has always been a little bit less of a um, a sure thing for, mm-hmm. for the blue. There was a lot of culture war stuff about around its schools. So is it such a sure thing there too? It's not, no. So in, in Loudoun County, the parent rights groups are really supportive of this policy. I think that's like the one Northern Virginia County that is a little bit different from the rest. But all of the others that have spoken out are very much against this policy and also very, very blue. What other topics are is Virginia kind of divided on? In recent years, I'm trying to think. I think there's also the banned book conversation because Youngkin's really been pushing that push to ban books that have anything to do with uh, sexual orientation or sex education. And Northern Virginia has been pushing back on that as well. This is banned book week, actually. So that's a, a fitting part of this conversation. Speaking of banned things, um, uh, <laughs> things that Glenn Youngkin, among others, would not want in schools, Kayla is, was telling me about something that happened at the Washington Monument this week, and it's uh, a weird little piece of local news, but kind of an interesting one. Yeah, so you probably you probably seen the pictures, um, but basically, the Park Police just arrested a man named Sean Ray Deaton 
from Bloomington, Indiana, for basically dumping red latex paint all over the base of the Washington Monument and essentially graffitiing the bottom with a less than family friendly quote, which I will not read. But now they've they've done a great job. They've cleaned it up. There's a very faint red stain that you can see on the marble. And they say, you know, a week of sun and a couple more cleanings and it will basically be good as new. This is not the first time this has happened to a national monument, as you can imagine. In 2013, somebody splashed green paint all over the Lincoln Memorial steps, and that one apparently took like a month to clean off. Apparently, it depends a lot on the type of rock that it is poured on. Apparently, the latex paint is really, it soaks into the marble because it's very porous and it's actually very difficult to clean off. So what do you guys think? What did you guys think when you saw it? There's been mixed reactions all over the internet. Some people saying, you know, well, duh, somebody's going to do this. And other people just being appalled that somebody would do this to their their national landmarks. I'm unclear what Sean Ray Deaton of Bloomington, Indiana, was trying to tell us in his message. What it says on the monument says, have you been effed by this, meaning the monument? Gov says tough shit. What does that mean? I mean, is he saying uh, that, uh, I mean, is that like a, a phallic illusion that, that, uh, that we have somehow all been collectively uh, screwed by the Washington Monument? Or is it the government that is supposed to be screwing us or the patriarchy or? or I think uh, all of I, the above. I, come on, Sean Ray <laughs> Deaton, if you're going to graffiti a national monument, we need you to be a little well, bit clearer. It wasn't very clearly mm. spelled out, I will say. Yeah. That's the thing Youngkin could get on is maybe <laughs> making it so that the kids who do graffiti can be a little bit clearer in their use of the English language. It was a very nebulous protest. I agree. I also thought it was really funny or maybe not funny, but the, the fact that they were so sure that it was going to take weeks to clean this off. That, like the fact that we made all of our monuments out of something that cannot easily be cleaned when it feels like that is very obviously the symbol that people are going to try and deface if trying to protest. There was graffiti on a lot of the monuments in 2020 as well, right? As part of the BLM protests. Yeah. Yeah. There was quite a few then. Are you saying you think our monuments should be like recast in like whiteboard? <laughs> oh, I mean, that would be kind of fun, actually. Then, we, you know, then we could be constantly. Art. Yeah, it's interactive art. We're all part of it. We're constantly reassessing what our monuments stand for. I kind of like that. That's not what I was thinking, but now I am all for it. <laughs> I will say in my, uh, you know, research, seeing if there was other incidences of this happening, there's not very many. There's like, those are the only two that I could find. And I'm actually very surprised, not that I'm encouraging it, but I'm surprised <laughs> that there have not been more cases of, you know, people using these as symbols for their anger against the government, because I feel like there's plenty of that to go around. Well, I think it also just takes a lot of gall. That was the other thing that I thought when I first saw this news. I mean, to walk up to the Washington Monument, which when you think about it, actually isn't that heavily guarded, but it feels like it is. It just feels like the entire National Mall is heavily surveilled. It's, yeah. I mean, there's it's guarded. <laughs> you kind of right. have to expect the worst is going to happen. When you look at pictures from like the 70s, 
you know, there was like a parking lot around the Washington Monument. The city seemed like so, like completely unsupervised. Yeah. And nowadays, you know, it is true. I think that I'm amazed that a man could like take a bottle of spray paint out of his pocket without being swarmed. Right. And in this case, it's like, it's it's paint. It's legit paint. So was he walking up to it with paint cans, you know? To, like a bucket. I think like a bucket of paint. Right. Because like he splattered paint. it. It's, yeah. a, it's a big splotch. So I don't know. There, there's a... Obviously, this is bad. I do not support this. But there's a part of me that's a little bit impressed with Sean. Yeah. Okay, He's a brave yeah. man. <laughs> and kudos to the National Park Service for cleaning it all up and doing such a good job. Looks great, guys. Yeah. Very proud. Very impressive. <laughs> All right, that's all for today here on CityCast DC. I'm Priyanka Tilve, the lead producer. And I'm newsletter editor Kayla Cody Stemmerman. Our producer is Julia Karen, and our hosts are Bridget Todd and me, Michael Schaefer from Politico. Music is by Alex Roldan. If you enjoyed this show, subscribe and tell a friend about our morning newsletter, too. You can subscribe to that at dc.citycast.fm. We'll be back Monday morning with more news from around the city. Bye. I was just trying to describe what I did, and I was like, oh, it's like CityCast. It's like CityCast. And then, like, half an hour later, she was like, oh, I thought you were saying City Cats this whole time. And I was like, what would I possibly <laughs> do awesome. at City Cats? Like, good good name, though. What wouldn't you do? Lie. Yeah. That's true. <laughs>